Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Welcome to this eighth podcast in the Village in the City series. On this occasion, we're welcoming Laura Pootkammer into Village in the City. Laura is an expert on participatory urban planning and guerrilla urbanism, and her consultancy is the brilliantly named Par City Patery. Laura starts off by talking about the ladder of participation, and then later in the call we branch out into smaller things you can do, ways of thinking about engaging locals with very low budgets and with lots of creativity and innovation. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So my name is Laura. I am from Germany originally. I'm currently sitting in the south of Mexico. Um, due to COVID, I decided to stay here for a little while. Um, I've been working in Mexico City for the last three years. So I'm a consultant on participatory techniques in urban planning. But I come more from the social sciences. You say I've also got a degree in political science. So I come at the whole urban planning topic, not from a technical point of view, but more from a social point of view. So I try to be a bridge, you know, between the urban planners and between communities. Um, I blog about that. I also work as a journalist, trying to give communities, especially here in Mexico, uh, more of a voice and kind of present some of the solutions uh, they have here. So what I do is called solutions journalism. So I'll talk a little bit about the rationale for participatory planning and participatory techniques. But I will also give you some examples to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. And in the end, I do have some discussion questions for you. But before that, I am also very happy to take your questions. Participatory planning is the ultimate grassroots approach. The idea is that those who live in a neighborhood actually get to decide how their urban environment or their more rural environment in some cases uh, will look like rather than a top-down approach where the urban planners come in and go, you know, like this neighborhood should have more parking, for example. The idea is to have a bottom-up movement where actually the citizens themselves co-create and co-design this whole process. And that requires quite a bit of rethinking in the urban planning process because that traditionally traditionally tends to be very top-down, plus it's also always sadly restricted by funds. So one of the pioneers for this idea of community engagement in planning is Jane Jacobs. You might have heard of her. Uh, she was an, a US American journalist and she became an activist when in New York City, they were planning on uh, building a big motorway through her neighborhood. And that's how she became active. And then afterwards she wrote some very famous books, including the death and life of great American cities. And in this book, she said, cities have the capabilities of providing something for everybody, but only because and only when they are created by everybody. So that's kind of the main idea behind participatory planning. And recently that has been picked up by international organizations as well. So it's becoming more mainstream. The United Nations have their sustainable development goals. That's an agenda that's try, that they try to reach or that all of the countries who are part of the United Nations are going to try to reach by 2030, which is very ambitious. And the goal number 11 uh, is exclusively about sustainable cities and communities. And uh, as one of their targets, they say, which I marked in yellow here, um, that they want to, or we all are supposed to work towards inclusive and sustainable urbanization and more capacity for participatory uh, planning and management in all countries. And then also there's the new urban agenda, which is by um, UN Habitat. So that's the body of the United Nations that's responsible for cities and human settlements. And in this new urban agenda that they came up with in, in Quito, in Ecuador, during this big um, conference in 2016, um, they also put a big focus on participatory 
civic engagement. So that's kind of to give you a bit of a background. So this is not just an idea, it's becoming part of international policies. And another important idea playing into that, and that's maybe even a bit more radical, is the right to the city, which um, is a concept from 1968. It comes from Henri Lefebvre, French. And for the first time in 2016, this right to the city, which is the right to live, to work and to play in the city, was included in an international document, which was the new urban agenda that I mentioned just in the slide before. Participating in urban planning is also living um, and implementing your right to the city. So it's not just a right to be a citizen of a city, it's a part, it's, it's a right to co-create the city and to actually be a big part of the city. This idea is particularly strong in Latin American countries, um, but it's taking a hold in many other countries as well. And it's part of the whole underlying rationale for also the work that Village in the City does. Um, so to further go into some basics of building participation and engagement in urban project projects. Um, key here is this letter of citizen participation. It's, I like using that. It's a very good illustration of how to participate. The idea is that participation is often used as a token, right? You've got urban planners or you've got municipal governments saying um, this is part of our participatory strategy, but in many cases it might be just a small survey. And then what happens to the survey results is usually quite unclear. It's not the actual citizen control, which are the top three ranks of this letter you can see. Um, it's more towards maybe in the area of tokenism. So it might be consultation. That means consulting the citizens, but not necessarily implementing what they say. Placating them by having maybe even a town hall event, but then not following through on the ideas of the citizens. citizens. Whereas an example for true citizen control would be participatory budgeting. They're doing that quite a bit in um, New York City, for example, but also this is taking hold in many other cities. So there the idea is that citizens actually get to decide how to distribute, distribute the, um, the budget in their neighborhood or in their municipality. And that effectively gives them a lot of control, much more obviously than they would have um, if they only participated in a survey. Um, and yeah, in order to include neighbors in the planning process or maybe in the initiatives that you as village in the city members are planning on doing, I think it's important to keep this letter of citizen participation in mind. You cannot always reach the top ranks, I think, but at least be aware of where you are at the moment, where are you yourself and where are the people that you work with on this letter. And then also, if you think of a participatory technique you are using, where do you think the results of that are based on this letter. So we've got a small poll here and I would like to ask you um, to just tell me where do you see yourself on this letter of citizen participation? And there I would like to consider you yourself as, as citizens in the neighborhoods you live in. So this is not so much about your work, it's more about how you feel, how much you can participate. Yes, perfect. So it looks like a few of you see yourself in the, no, but not many. Most of you see yourself in the tokenism area, but there's also quite a bit of citizen control, partner, partnership, delegation, and actual true citizen control with only one of you. Um, consultation, sadly, is the winner, although it's much better than nothing, right? But I'm just telling you this so that you're aware of um, the fact that consultation is more tokenism than actual participation, although it might be branded as participatory techniques and um, it might help governments to reach certain political goals. But uh, in terms of 
you know, co-creating and giving controls to the citizens that's somewhere around the middle of the ladder or maybe even the bottom third. So in order to climb the rungs of this ladder and to get further and further towards actually actual community engagement, there's a few different tools. And this is where I put so many links. <laughs> but uh, one of them is participatory mapping. So if, for example, you in your neighborhood want to lobby for a new um, playground for children or um, new flower pots or whatever you might like with your neighborhood, um, or maybe even the opportunity to do participatory budgeting, uh, these are some of the techniques you can use for, um, let's say, urban planning related things. Participatory mapping is usually a very good uh, tool. You can see an example of that on the left. This is not about creating an accurate map. It's more about gauging what the citizens might want, where priorities lie, and also what the neighborhood looks like in their minds. So this might be also about where do you feel safe, where do you feel less safe, and then looking at where women feel more safe, where young people feel more safe or less safe. So these are just some examples, but it's also, I think, a very, a very fun and engaging activity and a good way to include a lot of neighbors. You could, for example, do some kind of pop-up stall just on one street or in a central space in the neighborhood and then quickly have people who might just be passing by um, participate in that. Um, and then always also tell them what's going to happen to their votes or to their participation, what the results that you expect might be. Another idea are transect walks. And just based on, um, on my blog, because I can see you know, the analytics and statistics of how many people use uh, visit which website uh, of my blog. This is apparently the most popular method <laughs> that just by the way. So this actually consists in you getting together a group of neighbors, ideally a mixed, very mixed group, you know, different backgrounds, different ages, and just walk through the neighborhood quietly for how, however long it takes, maybe about half an hour. And then afterwards, share your impressions, possibly draw a map as well. And um, kind of try to get the neighbors to engage and to discuss in what did they notice in the neighborhood? Where would they like to see improvements? Which parts did they like? Where did they feel safe? And this is usually quite interesting also if you consider things like sound and smells, because these are other senses that you employ if you walk together, but silently. silently. So you might notice quite a few different things, which in turn might lead to some improvement ideas or some initiatives. What you can also do is distribute uh, cameras or maybe even just ask people to use their smartphone cameras and then take take pictures of the neighborhood so you could instruct them for example with questions like take a picture of a place you do not like take a picture of your favorite place and take a picture of maybe even another neighborhood and um, a good example of something you would like to have in your neighborhood this could be a very nice exhibition at some point it can be some um, online project or even used on social media to show what neighbors in your neighborhood um, seem to want. So ideally, the more neighbors participate, the broader your picture gets, of course. Um, some other tools would be playing with Lego bricks, which is most popular with adults usually, <laughs> to kind of build, build new ideas and just visualize and play around. Um, use chalk. I've done this in a few projects just on the streets or maybe on some walls, um, which is another way of engaging even people who just pass by who don't have a lot of time. But to draw something, to write something, if you give them a little prompt, that usually works pretty well. You can use whiteboards. There's a lot of opportunities uh, that have come up in the last year, pretty much in terms of virtual participation. There's also something to look into that uh, holds a lot of potential. 
And then I've just put a link in here on some more ways to improve your city. So feel free to have a look at that afterwards. Um, there's a lot more, a lot more techniques. These are just a few that um, I personally like to work with and that work, but in the end, everyone has their own kind of toolkit um, of techniques. And then it also depends on the neighbors and the communities. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, I tried to look at UK examples in particular. Um, so I did my master's degree in Manchester about four or five years ago. And there's the neighborhood of Levin's Hume that we worked in together with the neighborhood association. And we tried to find out how to go about um, upgrading or improving the neighborhood. But this project was at its very beginning. So we started with this participatory mapping process. Um, as you see, we color coded it a little bit. We looked at crime rates and then we looked at official statistics, but also at the more um, emotional connections that people had with certain corners or back streets. Uh, we looked at, um, as you can see in green, kind of the uh, positive examples, positive spaces in the neighborhood, which were community centers and a, a farmer's market. And then also we looked at some hotspots and some other issues like um, low air quality, for example. And in the end, we recommended to do a community garden and to also work with community festivals to bring the neighborhood together a little bit more. And one more idea that I know in the UK, you have a lot of these back, la back lanes between rows of housing. And these tend to be a bit neglected in many neighborhoods, especially in Manchester, I think. And um, at the same time, they provide an interesting um, opportunity to bring the community together. So you can try to upgrade them a little bit by doing a common gardening project or by um, allowing, allowing pedestrians to pass through. Um, depends a lot on the neighborhood, but these are a few ideas that we worked together with the neighborhoods, with the neighbors. We worked on together with the neighbors in, in Manchester in that case. Um, this is another project that I was not involved in, but I liked a lot. This was in Cork in Ireland. So the Shendon Street Renewal, Renewal Project. And this is a great example of a true you know, bottom-up movement because their neighbors actually got together and they said, we do not like our streets anymore. It's these back streets in particular, they were deteriorating a lot. There was crime, there was graffiti. So based on volunteer work, they got together, they started this gardening. You can see the flower pots. They did some street art. Um, and you might think that's more, mm, it's more kind of a soothing <laughs> measure more than anything, but in the end, it, it does change a lot. So it's not just pretty colors. It's not just flowers. It's actually an opportunity for the neighbors to get together, to get to know each other and to include the youth as well, who in many cases are seen as potential, actually contribute to crime or as a potential danger. You know, work with all of these groups together. If you find some low threshold ways, such as street art, um, to bring them together, that usually changes quite a lot. And then ideally, if you can get funds, like here in Cork, they got funds from the Irish government and from the European Union, um, that helps with the sustainability and the long-term progress of a project. Then I've got one example from uh, Mexico City, which I've been living there for the last few years. So their walkability is a big issue. Um, sidewalks are in a very sorry state in many cases, and that leads to a lot, lot of problems such as more and more use of cars and um, very low safety for pedestrians. Um, but actually the government has been making it a priority to in improve these pedestrian crossings. Um, so in co cooperation with several local artists, they've done this kind of colorful painting of sidewalk, of, uh, sorry, zebra crossings. 
and they are also making them much bigger. So as you can see, it's not just a perpendicular crossing anymore. Um, they actually looked at where people do cross in real life because we tend to not just go by the lines, right? And so they, um, that's one of the biggest crossings in the city, in the city center. Uh, they made that much bigger, but in this case, it's a very nice example, but it's an exa example actually of tokenism, I would say, because this was not very participatory. It's something that the statistics show and I agree, just based on my experience, people do need that. But if you cooperate with one or two local artists, you know, that's very nice, but it's not a truly bottom-up uh, project. And there the question is, do the citizens feel involved? Is that where they actually want funds to be spent? Or do they have much bigger, much bigger issues or pressing worries, for example? And also, will they take ownership of this? Would they, you know, make any improvements? Would they actually respect these new zebra crossings or not? Because they were not involved in the decision process. So that's just something to think about. A quick reminder that you're listening to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro local community where you live. You can find out lots more about Village in the City, access our Village Builders handbook, free resources and join our online community to engage with village builders around the world on our website villageinthecity.net. Village in the city, all one word, dot net. Well, we opened up the conversation to questions at this point, And unusually, I was in with the first question this time about how we can use these our practical ideas in very low key and low budget ways. Many of us are coming to this quite new and we're working with quite small patches and no budget to speak of. What Have, have you got a kind of maybe a, an idea or two that can be done easily and and cheaply uh, in a with a small a small area that would just be a way of getting things off the ground or getting things moving in this respect yes um there i would recommend doing something like in cork they took one small street so this is not much longer than 20 meters they have wall there was a lot of graffiti and they just needed in terms of the budget they just needed the colors and the flower pots so there you can work with donations or work with what you've got in your in your workshop maybe that's very easy and then also using social media usually helps a lot if, if you've got local facebook groups or other groups you can um, put out a call to action and yet another thing is working with chalk that i mentioned so if you just if you've got a big wall an empty wall somewhere in your neighborhood you can um write a prompt in, on it and then maybe mm, provide a box full of chalk sticks and hope that no one will steal them but usually that works but you could write a prompt like I wish this place was dot 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 or if I got to decide I would build dot 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 here and then you leave some space and then hopefully within the space of maybe a week um, a lot of passersby would write something and there you've got your first well it's kind of a survey right but it's also bottom-up data that you can use for um, further initiatives. Lovely to see you, Adrian, from Berlin. I'm very glad to be here. Um, and I was, um, as a, uh, Laura knows, uh, maybe um, about these Stadtteilzentren, these neighborhood centers, quartier management. Um, I'm just wondering about maybe your experience in Mexico um, with this type of arrangement. I think something that is important to remember is to use what's already there. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what sort of role that plays uh, in, the, in the work that you've been doing in the participatory sense? I think especially in, in Mexico or even in African countries, for example, you usually have community leaders 
and I think that's a stronger concept than it is in some European countries, but more towards the global south, you've got these people of eminent respect. And if you get them to work with you, that is usually very helpful. And then at the same time, you also have to, if you want to work with a local association or community center, so these that exist in Berlin, for example, um, I think before working together with them, you have to look at how is their reputation with the neighbors? Because in a lot of cases, and I'm speaking of Mexico again, there's so much corruption going on. People would hate to work with, <laughs> with any local councils. They would not trust in anything. But if you, for example, got a local council to do participatory budgeting, that would be a very important signal. And that might be something people get on board with because there's examples from all over the world that that actually works out. Um, so this question of building trust is key. And sometimes it's much easier to build trust if you're an NGO and if you're not involved with the government. But depends a lot on the local context. Uh, Randy and then Lynn. I have, a, I have a kind of a simple illustration. The picture behind me is from the summer here in Nebraska when we all gathered outside in our street. But uh, now it's very cold and we had a um, woman that was uh, undergoing some uh, medical examinations at another city and we wanted to welcome her home. And ordinarily we would have been in the street when she drove down the street and cheered or something. But uh, we decided to park our cars in the uh, in the driveways facing the street. And as she, her husband let me know when she was about to come down our block and we all flashed our lights at her. And it, it uh, it's just simple little thing, but it's, it's a way of connecting and, and showing you care, so. It's a beautiful example, Randy. I agree. Usually it's very small thing. You don't need a big budget for any yeah, of the well, our, <laughs> our neighborhood get-together started with uh, an, an example from Spain where they were stepping outside at 8 o'clock at night to applaud the, the uh, me medical workers. And that's what how we got started. And now we've turned into a real interesting little village project here. And what you also did and what's, what I can recommend thinking about is using different senses. So you did not work with kind of talking to this woman in your case, you worked with lights, mm -hmm. right? And then in Spain, they worked with the sound, the clapping. I know there has been a lot of musical projects during the COVID pandemic. So that's just a, a bit of a different way to flip a switch and think about these um, techniques in a bit of a different way. What else could you do? Or could you cook, for example, you know? Yeah, we bought her a giant cookie. <laughs> so Lynn did you have a question? I found the ladder very thought-provoking and um, I've been fairly recently appointed uh, into the role as compassionate communities lead with with our local hospice um, uh, and the aim really there is to engage at the grassroots level and to almost bring into visible awareness what's already happening you know the recognition that compassion already exists but very often, and I think even hospice isn't immune from this, we've professionalized the art of dying so that people have almost lost connection with the very natural process of death, dying, grief and loss. And the hospice, I think, has been quite revolutionary in its intention to break down that wall and, and has really enabled us to begin engaging at the community level, not, not to come into communities and do the hospice thing in the community, but to actually find out from the communities what do you already do that, that looks like compassion and how can we help you do that? So I, I'm just finding it very inspiring to be part of a platform of people um, with very different agendas, but this, this kind of grassroots approach to collaboration and engagement 
um, and as a clinician for 17 years, it's been quite a, a paradigm shift for me to actually come down to the level of the neighbor and find out, you know, where are your strengths? Where are your gifts? And how can we help you monopolize those? Um, and maybe we'll meet in the middle somewhere. We're in the process of putting together a, a compassionate neighbors project so that people scattered across our catchment area um, can get a bit of, of light touch training and, and then go back into their streets and have the confidence to have difficult conversations. So that's kind of where I'm coming from and that's why I'm here. Richard. Yeah, I, I was going to make a comment that it, if, you, if you want to start making these connections, it's nice to have some kind of event or celebration or activity that you're thinking of. And it, your activity could be as, as simple as let's make a little flower bed or clean up the local park. But anything that gives you an excuse to go and talk to people about the thing you're going to do, that often if you if someone asked about working with local government, and I would say yes and, but often the way the government works is at such a different pace as you want to work that you start talking to your local councillors they'll say yeah we can put that on the 2022 agenda and you know you lose momentum so talk to the local government but if you can find any kind of simple activity that's doable and just talk to people about it about doing it that can be a way of building community because then you find the people in your local community who want to work with you and if you're just by yourself it's tricky once you've found one other person then you don't feel like you're the lone nut you start being you start being a team and that's very important for your own internal motivation exactly richard and if i may jump in also about the question from titus or titus sorry um about advice and experience of getting local authorities or powers to support local participation so richard you already spoke to that a little bit i would like to add that i would really recommend trying to get some kind of data in order to convince local authorities these can be self-drawn maps they can be surveys they can be you know existing maps and you put little colorful stickers on certain areas but if you can show them that there's actually a number of neighbors behind you that will be quite helpful and then i just wanted to share the term tactical urbanism with you so these are kind of pop-up interventions and other interventions along the lines we've been speaking about it can be as simple as a flower bed or just painting a big graffiti together with all like a street art a work of art or graffiti with all of the neighbors but with tactical um, urbanism, you've got the idea of a long-term change that you want to achieve. And that's something where you can easily involve the neighbors in. And again, you would act as some kind of bridge between the neighbors and the local government, for example. And by showing the local government the changes that you can achieve by doing something very small and cheap, such as a flower bed, for example, you have a very good starting position and you've got this tactic you know, of, of showing them that in the long term, if they gave you some funds to create five more flower beds, this kind of change would happen. If you've got the data to convince them, that will help a lot. I, I just wanted to add to that and maybe qualified a little bit my comment before. I think there's a lot of, a lot of um, informational plans that are already out there uh, that might be at a sub-local level that you know, it might be in the local council, or as I said before, the, the local neighbourhood group. And those plans are there often and covered or they're not known about because not that many people, you know, um, make the effort to go directly to perhaps a representative of your neighbourhood. And that representative might also not be sort of proactively going out into the community and, um, you know, they're stuck in their comfort zone a little bit or whatever. And I've had that experience before where uh, we were doing a, a school um, safety, uh, local safety um, initiatives, um, way to school, uh, local safety initiatives, initiative. and there were maps out there and we were sort of 
going to do a similar project without knowing that those maps were already there or, or that activities that are those activities are already being done. So just it's part of the process, I guess, um, that sometimes gets overlooked. And uh, I think that it's yeah, just with the manifesto of the solution focus, see what's already existing and see what you can hook into. Um, and use uh, and and sort of if it's already written on paper, then you've got a great chance of you know you're talking about participatory budgeting. Is it a priority? Why is it sort of not or whatever? Um, yeah. So sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to add that too. Perfect. And as a journalist, I would also add that um, try to get the media on board. If there's a local paper or maybe a blog in the area, or if you try Facebook groups, for example, that will help and give you a lot of leverage with the government as well. Somebody voted them, voted themselves at eight on the ladder of participation. I'm wondering if that person might care to uh, unmute and share their, their what that experience was about and uh, tell us a little bit about it. That would be lovely. Well, Mark, it was me. Okay, there. <laughs> it was me. I was trying to remember what eight was. Um, I actually started with this idea that whatever we do here in our little neighborhood, we do on our own. What we are doing is actually very small scale. And doing it on our own without asking permission or without letting know, or without letting know the local authorities is possible. It is not against the law. We are not infringing anybody's rights. We are not trespassing. So my determination is a strong word, but I thought whatever we do, we do it on our own. What is interesting, only the other day, we had a disagreement, an argument, possibly. We, we are going to do notices on the name tablets of the streets, where the name of the street comes from, and if it is a person, uh, what, what this person did or has, been, has done, so that to become the name of a street. And we had a dispute, we had an argument because the person who volunteered to take the project from A to Z, she said, I will write to the local authorities for permission to put the street signs. And I thought, what's the point? Our neighborhood is so far from any center of the city. And uh, if we ask the local authorities, it will take ages. And probably they will say, no, I don't know. I don't know, but it will, for sure, it will take ages. So whatever we do in the near future, I think we, we want to do it on our own. This is why I put eight. It's, it was easy because we are doing, we're very small scale. Yes. Yes, well, thank you. Leia is in Sofia in Bulgaria, everyone. I like, I love this idea of just doing small things without anyone's permission. You don't need permission to do small things in your own neighborhood. And there's all sorts of levels we can work on. And uh, I see in the chat that uh, Laura has shared also the term guerrilla urbanism, which I must go and look up. That sounds very appealing to me. Yeah, I, I just spoke a bit about Transition Streets in my group and I popped the, the link to the Transition Streets website in the chat in case anyone's interested 
Um, what's very helpful is that you can download the Transition Streets workshop, um, sorry, workbook for free from their website. And so we use that to, to provide some structure for our meetings. Um, and we met every week, um, sorry, every two weeks um, for seven sessions and worked our way through the workbook. And we, we enjoyed it so much and we were getting so much out of it that we didn't want to stop meeting. So we've continued to meet fortnightly beyond the workbook and we now pick our own topics to discuss. But the whole idea behind that is, is strengthening your, you know, your connections with your neighbours, but also making changes to your own lifestyle to lessen your impact on the environment. And it's amazing how, how motivating it is to make those changes when you're part of a small group. Um, the other thing that we're doing at the moment in our neighbourhood, which has been really nice as well, this month for the month of February, um, this grew out of the Transition Streets group, is we're doing a thing called Fix It Feb. Um, and so for the month of February, we're inviting all of our neighbours to, to think about things about the house that we've fixed or repaired or maintained and to reach out to their neighbours um, to ask for know-how, to, to share skills, um, and also to do a bit of tool sharing as well. So it's been wonderful to see what things our neighbours have fixed and also for them to ask other neighbours for help. We've had bicycles fixed, toasters fixed, toilet seats fixed, um, and it's all on the back of this initiative that has been really primarily been online as well. So it's a good one to do while there's COVID restrictions too. What stood out for me is, is how many ideas come from talking. Yes. Absolutely. So talking is talking is creativity writ large, I think, particularly if you come at it with the right spirit. Thank you, Kate.